What is up, wrestling fans, and welcome back to another trip back in time with 2001 A Wrestling Odyssey, where me and my guests are here, Robert DeFelice. Hello. Yes, we are taking a trip back to 2001, the year where wrestling went crazy. In 2019, where the year, the year where wrestling is also going crazy. Absolutely. Uh, we were obviously discussing this um, when we were cool. We had a call last night to do uh, the uh, Fighter Fest predictions, which you can obviously check out on the YouTube channel as well as all of the other millions of videos we've done in the past week. It feels like uh, six days. Like yeah, yeah. I know it's 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 a a long grind, but we we enjoy it. Uh, about the fact that now we've got Eric Bischoff and Paul Heyman in prominent positions in WWE, we've got a wrestling war forming between AEW and WWE and New Japan. It's it's like being back in a time before 2001. Ironically, with AEW taking the Wednesday night slot, that's the deal that Fusion Media was working with WCW to get that Wednesday night slot with Turner for 10 years. So things are really coming full circle in 2019. Yeah, it's almost like we can pretend that the previous 18 years didn't actually happen. We can just resume from where we left off. With the exception of a handful of great matches, I wouldn't mind that too much. Well, what we're going to be doing on this show is, as usual, breaking down all of the things that were taking place in June of 2001, and then capping it off with a review of King of the Ring 2001 as well. But before we do that, let's go through the reheated tags of uh, this time of year. And we start with the perennial question, what the hell is going on with WCW this week? And the answer to that one is a big change, which is we'd obviously been talking about in the previous months that the plan was to give WCW its own show, give it its own slot on TV, seemingly a Saturday night thing, just to get the the wheels rolling before they were able to get a more prominent spot on television. Now, all change. The idea... Obviously being, as many people may already be aware, Vincent Mann would give uh, WCW the Monday night slot. Instead of, and Raw would be owned by WCW. That is, the only way I can see that even coming to fruition is if it was only meant for one angle. Because Raw is the baby. I just don't understand how they'd be so willing to give the Monday night slot to a new brand. Well, the idea was, in terms of like getting Raw over onto the WCW side of things, was that due at ending at the invasion angle, there would be some sort of storyline build up where, very similar to probably how they did it with Survivor Series in reality, where one side would win more matches than the other side, or have a big winner takes all match at the end of the night. And then Shane would win Raw from Vince in that match. And then SmackDown would be the WWE show. Do you think subconsciously there's always been an effort to try to make SmackDown the bigger brand? Because SmackDown is the word more associated with WWE. I don't think it's due to that. I think that SmackDown realistically has always been on not always, but on many occasions has been on better networks than Raw. Because Raw has, at least as far as I'm aware, has only been on two networks, USA and, uh, well, Spike, essentially. Yeah. Uh, I think 
specifically, I don't know if I'd call them better networks in terms of the view in the eye of the public, but SmackDown was typically on network television through UPN and later uh, the CW. And, and now come into Fox TV. as well. Yeah, and now comes... come into Fox. So it seems like SmackDown's always been the more easily accessible show. Yeah, and I think that was the logic they were going with here, the idea that SmackDown would be is viewable on more television so they can still have a sizable audience on SmackDown while giving WCW a platform to show, even if Raw was only going to be for a short-term thing, giving them the Monday night slot and making that WCW Raw would mean that it gets more eyes on the product and if it's successful, they get their own show down the line and become two separate brands again. Did they own the Nitro name immediately? I believe so. I think they would have snapped up all the trademarks, but I can't be 100% certain. I'll give you the information there. I know that the idea was to call it WCW Raw, not Nitro. That's, see, that would have been weird. I'm glad they didn't do that. Well, we we know the reason why it didn't end up happening that way, but we can't cover it explicitly because it didn't happen until July. So you're going to have to hold fire on that one because we will be doing a review of the infamous Buff Bagwell versus Booker T match from the episode of Raw which uh, essentially started the invasion and killed WCW in one fell swoop. Yeah. That was yeah. that was not great, but we'll get to that in July. Yeah. But essentially, the um, stance with Viacom remains the exact same as it was beforehand, and TNN essentially saying that we, if we're going to bring WCW back, we want to make sure that we have the stars that WCW had, and WCW... WS position remains the same. We're not going to spend additional money to buy Goldberg or Ric Flair or Sting or people like that out of their contract. That's very stubborn. I don't understand that. Uh, we've, we've tried to we've tried to unpack it. It's, it still makes no sense because it's at the end of the day they would have made infinitely more money than they ended up making. So but, much more money. Yeah, but the idea was that they didn't want to upset their structure. And, yeah, so that's pretty much the way they ended up going. For the, the wrong way, but, you know, we can't really help it nowadays. Yeah. Uh, uh, there was also the idea that whether you they couldn't actually end up putting WCW on, the, on another network because it became clarified during this month that Viacom owned exclusive rights to any product that was would come, fall under the WWFE umbrella which is their bigger, which at that point in time was the bigger con- conglomerate name. The WWF was like the, the brand name for television, but they were WWFE in terms of corporate landscape. So what did that World Wrestling Federation Entertainment? Yeah, at that point in time, before Boy. it just got shortened down to, it, the F got out, essentially. I think they did a campaign about that. Yeah. You know, I guess it all worked out for the best. The invasion angle wasn't great, but maybe it would have been more convoluted had we gotten a WCW Raw. Oh, that's true. Potentially, it would have it would have muddied the waters a little bit. But we're gonna have a we potentially could have a WCW SmackDown soon. Uh, this off in charge. The, you know what? And it'll be a WCW NWO SmackDown. Of course, yeah. Or just NWO SmackDown. Oh, but, uh, in order to build up towards the Invasion pay-per-view, which will be the pay-per-view that we cover on the uh, July edition, more reasons to tune in for the next episode of this one. 
you get to we got to see a lot of WCW superstars interfering on television and now appearing more often on WWF TV. So obviously last month we talked about uh, Lance Storm firing the first shot in a meaningless tag team match. And then we had, over the course of the month of June, we had Hugh Morris, Moonsault Someone. I can't remember yeah. who it was exactly. But we had uh, Stacey Keebler make the first appearance. Uh, DDP, obviously in the big stalker angle, which I think we'll cover in more detail when we get to King of the Ring. Unreal, but yes. Booker T again as well, we'll, we'll talk about from King of the Ring. Mike Awesome, who was the first WCW superstar to win a WWF championship when he won the hardcore title. That's crazy. Uh, Chuck Plumbo and Sean O'Hare, uh, who were the first WCW superstars, besides DDP, to get absolutely buried on the television stage when they essentially got beaten up by the entire roster. Well, they were the tag champs, right? Uh, they were, yeah, they were WCW tag champs at the time. Yeah. And then. Four of them. And Tori Wilson, who, whose role, for the, at least her first two appearances, were to uh, humiliate Vincent Mann by pretending that she wanted to fuck him. Yes, and then she gets Linda to surprise him, right? Yeah. Oh, because so that's actually a funny segment. It is a funny segment, but you know, just just another case of Vincent Mann with the next hot diva. You know, the shocking thing there is we mentioned champions of all three brands. We mentioned Mike Awesome, who was an ECW champ, Colombo and O'Hare, and the only other person outside of Diamond Dallas Page that's in the Hall of Fame is Tori. Booker. Well, yeah. He's in there twice. He is in there twice, and I think I'm just shocked that more... Stars didn't get to do more. When you really run down that list and you go, all right, so the only names that matter here are Paige, and he was buried. Booker, who worked his way back up from being buried. And then Tori, who managed to get in the Hall of Fame because, wow, was she attractive? Yeah, well, you don't imagine after things that happened in the recent in recent past that Hugh Morris will ever get into the Hall of Fame. Uh, maybe if he has a jelly donut between his cheeks. Isn't that uh, the uh, thing that he used to make people do? Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I, I hope so, otherwise you just came up with some sort of weird analogy, I thought. But, yeah, that's, that's, uh, so that's essentially the situation with WCW nowadays. And once we hit July, we'll see the, the rise of the Alliance, shall we say. You know, I remember being into that as a seven-year-old going on eight-year-old kid. But I look back on it now and I'm like, what a waste of just everything. We have, we have a better semblance of what the invasion could have been behind the scenes today than we did on screen 18 years ago. Yeah, we'll cover all of that disappointment in the in the coming months, don't you worry? But we'll instead transition away from WCW into the future of WWF with Tough Enough. So the first episode launched on MTV on uh, this one. Did very well in the ratings. I think it was a 2.1 rating from the first night, which made it the highest rated show on cable for its opener. Uh, and it means that it actually gets got higher ratings then than uh, SmackDown gets nowadays. 
Unreal. But you know, if you look at Tough Enough back then, I think there's a reason that it got such high ratings and that it was so attractive. First of all, obviously, WWF was at its peak. Uh, Tough Enough being a reality show in an era where those weren't as commonplace and throwaway as they are today. And MTV was the perfect network for it. So I think it was a perfect storm of media for Tough Enough back then. And I think that's why it doesn't work today. No, it do- it doesn't have the same appeal. I think nowadays, especially with the two most recent Tough Enoughs, it's very, I guess, sanitized is probably the best way of putting it. It, it They try and make it too glitzy and glamorous in the, in the hopes of making it seem legitimate. But you get the sense that everything they do is fake. And I know yeah. it's wrestling, so everything is fake anyway. But it's like their personalities, their attitudes towards each other are completely fake. I would agree. And I think they just try to make it too much like The Voice instead of mm. it being this gritty show where people are trying to learn how to become wrestlers. Because, yes, and I don't know how in-depth we're going to go here, but there's a good episode with Triple H where, you know, he's teaching them how to work punches. And he just says, listen, if you sold that shit in the ring, I'd tag you for real. Like. You're getting that behind-the-scenes look, but it's a real vibe of the violence of pro wrestling. Well, well, I, I think that we won't cover it entirely at this point in time, but maybe just give a bit of an overview before we get to the the final, which took place in uh, September. So, but I think it's 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 worth pointing out like who was involved. I found out shockingly late in my uh, research process that. The entire first season of Tough Enough is on the WWE Network, and so yeah, the every season of Tough Enough is on the WWE Network. Wow. Well, at least the first three, because I know from season four onwards it became part of SmackDown, and then obviously afterwards, and obviously the newer ones are on the network as well. I did not know that. That's no, I no, I found that shocking late, which meant that I only I I would have watched the entire thing to try and get a sense for it, but I ended up only just watching the first episode. And that gave me enough of a sense because it was a little bit. Uh, I I don't know I don't know if I was at my age now watching it then that I would have continued to watch it. Maybe out of fascination, but there was a lot of things that put me off, mainly because no one was any good. Yeah, but it was a lot of just brand new people who had never tried anything, right? Yeah. So there was a judging panel, essentially, and. There had been people that had sent in 4,000, I think they said over 4,000 audition tapes had been sent in. And out of that, they had chosen 20, 230 people to audition. Uh, did you know that uh, Justin Roberts was one of the people that sent in an audition tape? I did not. Yeah, he didn't make it to the auditions. But I don't know how many years later he went, would end up doing the announcing work for them. So obviously He's probably the done on. more... Uh, valuable work than most who've ever been on Tough Enough. Yeah, and we'll definitely get to cover that side of things. But So, the people that were on the judging panel was just like a who's who of people. There were the coaches, which were uh, named to be Al Snow and Taz on the men's side. And on the women's side, Jacqueline and Tori. Not Tori Wilson, obviously, but the other Tori. But during the uh, production of Tough Enough, Tori was released from her contract. Ah. And so 
obviously they had already filmed pretty much all of Tough Enough as except the final uh, prior to it, so it wasn't like it was going on in progress really too much. So uh, I'm actually I'm going through some of these tryout videos and specifically on the women's side, they're very provocatively cringy. Well, that's the point, really, because, I mean, you, you look at the first kind of woman they bring out to audition, and it's Nydia, who would obviously be the eventual, spoiler alert, would be the eventual winner alongside Maven. And she's obviously an attractive woman, but she couldn't skip rope. She couldn't do any of the jumps. Uh, she was winded after 30 seconds of skipping rope, which Taz points out off to her. And so it's like, oh, I don't really care. She's going through anyway, because, you know. She's hot. And that's what they were going for at the time. Essentially, the, um, when Dave Meltzer reports in the um, Observer why they chose Nydia, it was basically due to the fact that she was more exotic looking than the other woman in the final. Wow. That, and that's the decision-making process. Uh, funnily enough, uh, in terms of other people in the judging panel, Kevin Dunn was obviously there. Uh, which you could see. I mean, you could hardly tell because the glare from his teeth was uh, distracting a little bit. <laughs> but other than that, you also had Michael Cole. Mick Foley, Jonathan Coachman, and uh, the MTV producers as well. They were all in part of the uh, decision-making process. That's interesting. Well, I think it it goes to show at this point in time where WWE's mindset was at. Because I think people realised, and this is also an issue with Tough Enough in overall, that it, it made some bad ways behind the scenes because a lot of the wrestlers were pissed off about the fact that these guys were getting an easy ride to a WWE contract. Oh, yeah. Wouldn't but, you be? Oh, yeah, I would be as well. But it's just a case of... It's just... You know, you get the sense of the reasons why they were picking them were not the right reasons that people would be picked nowadays. I say I say that. The way that Triple H would pick people for NXT, so he picks them based on merit and talent, whether it's on the microphone, in the ring, and he puts their, those talents to use in the best way he possibly can. Whereas at this point in time, it was about getting somebody who impressed the TV audience based on their charisma and just look and personality, which are obviously important commodities, but less so about actually being good in the ring. So one of the things I've noticed, I don't know who it is, but one of these judges has an XFL football just <laughs> sitting in front of them. It was very dead at that point in time. Well, it unless they filmed dead it before, it was point. dead. Yeah. So a bit behind the times there. But we talk about some of the contestants that were going in from the first round because I have to say that there was this one guy from the first episode that I saw. I'm trying to find it on my uh, notes here. Uh, this guy called William who um, stood out because he had a, a great physique and he said that he basically said the reason why he was trying to get into the business because he wanted to look out for his uh, younger brother because his father had died. And so he was essentially being a father figure for his younger brother. And I thought, this guy looks great. He looks like a great athlete. He talks really well. He's got a really emotional backstory behind him. Wasn't picked for the final. Like for the, even even to go into the house at all. Wasn't even picked. <laughs> and I just That's thought that was pretty. Yeah, I just thought, this is like your, your typical reality TV show sob story. And you've decided to just, no, not going to go with it. Instead, we'll go with, I don't know, uh, Tom, who had to, who was um who was selected to be in the final thirteen, who was essentially a guy whose gimmick was 
I'm much better looking than everyone else around, even though he wasn't. So essentially, he just he came in as a heel character, and then uh, refused to sign the MTV contract, and so didn't get into the house anyway. Oh shit! So he was replaced by one of the other people who still wasn't William. So I don't I don't know what's going on there. Look at uh, look at little Josh Matthews. Just yeah. Wow. So, so Josh would end up as one of the final five people involved in the show, and it was the idea of people when they first saw him they immediately said well he's too small obviously that it helped that taz was on the judging panel because taz would talk about the fact that he's only five foot whatever and still managed to make it into the wwf based on his ability and so he won't tell someone that they're too small taz came across as a real dick on this entire thing because i think he was trying to impress people he was still in like the hard taz mode yeah, because this was this was the year before Taz basically phased out of being an in-ring competitor entirely. And so he was still trying to impress and maybe try and get a push out of this. Actually, most of them were probably trying to do that. But Taz, at one point, goes into the auditioning room where everyone else is just like waiting around and basically just berates all of them by saying, if you don't want to be here, then piss off because I'm so annoyed about how all of you were just taking this, not taking this seriously at all and all that other stuff. Like, trying to be a real hard man. I'm just looking at... First of all, this is so 2001 in terms of what everybody... The hairstyles and all that. And just... Mm. Everybody here seems like they have no idea what pro wrestling is. No, a lot of them came in with in terrible conditioning and shape. Because they end up doing drills, whether it was jumping rope or jumping over, uh, uh, like dummies and stuff like that or just just elements like that really basic drills and many of them couldn't actually do that either couldn't weren't coordinate enough to land properly or were too fat and too slow to do it with any sort of like real consistency like few of them barely any of them could even like scuttle run across the ropes they weren't even running the ropes they were just scuttle running across from one side to the other there was this a I'm going to look up William, because William really does look like a great athlete. He has an emotional story. Um, Yeah, I I don't don't know. I don't get it. I I didn't check up to see what would happen to him afterwards. But in terms of other people that were auditioning, you had ODB was an auditionee, but didn't get through. She got to the uh, final 25, but didn't get through to the final 13. Uh, Same with uh, Jackie Gader as well. Because it's interesting, because Jackie Ada was a winner of the second season of Tough Enough, and she, she didn't make yeah, the cut. Yeah, she comes back. Yeah, and she didn't. Yeah, she didn't make the cut in the first one. And then, uh, obviously, Christopher Nowinski as well. There was one Which, point where. What an interesting story, because of everything good that he wound up doing for pro wrestling. Oh yeah, in terms of the concussion suit as well. Yeah. Um, there was a point where Taz spoke to Nowinski, and Nowinski had said to them that he had been trained by uh, Killer Kowalski. And Taz, I wanted to explicitly say this line because I think it still rings true today, when Taz said that he would have to be deprogrammed to work the WWE style. Wow. And that and that seems to ring true because that why else would people like Adam Cole, who has so much experience on the independent circuit, or people like Roger Strong, or Johnny Gargano, or anything like that, would have to work NXT? It's true. Because they've got more experience than many of the people that have been on, at that point in time especially, who have been on the WWE main card. And yet, I know it's the idea of like having to work for cameras and maybe they won't be as familiar about that, but 
you can pick that up in a couple of weeks. You've got you know all the skills, but you have to learn the WWE way of doing things. Perhaps that's why Corbin and Bliss get on and move up faster because they only know the WWE style. They're a WWE product, so it means that they can kind of present them as such, whereas people like Johnny Gargano have the long independent wrestling background, and so they're not entirely their property. Uh, But you have um, an instance at one point, Maven, who again is the eventual winner of the show, uh, the first thing he does when he gets into the uh, ring after obviously showing his physique and all that and starts doing his drills is he winks at Jacqueline. And that I assume at that point people were just thinking, yeah, we, he's going to make it pretty far. And essentially throughout the entirety of the series, Maven is the one who everyone says, OK, there's a lock that Maven is going to win this thing. And, you and know, the, reason- the good thing about Maven is he did make it. Yeah, he's not much now, but if you look back at the pantheon of WWE, he had that little thing with The Undertaker, he may have invented a Survivor Series, so he got out there. Do you know, if if you would say what one thing was wrong with Maven in WWE, or one thing that he lacked in WWE, what would you say it would be? I would say the ability to tie the minimal skills and whatever microphone work he had into the package. See, I would say that based on my knowledge of Maven at the time, which again, it was way back then. And so it was minimal, but he he definitely seemed to have a lack of charisma or in-ring charisma, which is the interesting thing because basically everyone talked about, the only thing everyone really talked about throughout the first uh, season of Tough Enough was how charismatic Maven was. Yeah, but it's different when the camera is on. And you have to be a character. Yeah, I don't think he ever really assumed a character, which is probably the right way of putting it. Um, we'll obviously talk more about like the ending of it when we get round to September. We won't cover every single show like week, month to month, really, because I don't think it really needs to, that much explanation. But essentially, it was a very unique way of presenting television at that point in time. It spawned many other seasons going forward. It brought a few new people into the fold in terms of just being in WWE. Uh, I think it was it was definitely groundbreaking for its time. I don't think there's any argument that it wouldn't be. Yeah, and it worked to an extent. They did find people to throw into developmental, like a Morrison, who wasn't this season but would be in a later season. Uh, they didn't hire him, but Kenny King... Uh, Josh Matthews, who is still working in wrestling today. So Tough Enough was pretty good. Yeah, I just... I I enjoyed the gritty nature and more realistic feel of it, but at the same time, a lot of the wrestlers, especially Taz, came across as real dicks now and during the season. But that's because that these guys, they felt that these guys weren't taking what they do for a living seriously. And I can understand that to a degree, but it also, like... Maybe they shouldn't have done a show like this then if they knew that everybody was going to get pissed off at people being on the show. Right. Because at the end of the day, like, if you're going to do a show like this, you're going to have to bring people in that aren't trained at wrestling. Because there's the idea they didn't actually... And if you do this today, and they will, there's going to be another one coming up, but it might be all women. The environment would be different because wrestlers aren't as hard ass anymore 
because it's like well known like well this is a I'm gonna help you learn it rather than whoa 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 you're coming in here you're taking my spot there's not that vibe anymore yeah I, I definitely agree with that sort of things and also nowadays if they were to do a tough tough thing it probably wouldn't be a lot of people that have no wrestling experience whatsoever it would be people that at least have some either reps on the independent circuit or have been training at least a degree whereas this competition it was almost a decree that people shouldn't have wrestling training before appearing on the show which is smart because you want to give the idea that yes literally anybody can do it yeah they're starting from the ground up whereas in the second season they made it more of a decree that they wanted people with independent experience which you know makes more sense for the nature of the business today yeah but so that's tough enough then it was a big success and so we'll we'll get back to it round about september time to round up how they uh how the show just completely rounded off in the end uh a few other bits and pieces of news uh there were a lot of injuries coming out of wwe at the end of june 2001 which completely hampered the invasion angle even further so we took we talked about hunter and benoit and all that yeah, so essentially by the end of June, we've got uh, Triple H already on the shelf due to his uh, quadriceps tear. Uh, Benoit is completely out of action due to a um, nerve damage. Uh, essentially just suffered a, um, I think it was uh, like a slip disc in one of his necks, in one of his necks, in, in like part of his neck. And so he couldn't uh, perform beyond the, he went into the uh, King of the Ring pay-per-view like badly injured and decided to just do this match anyway. It also didn't help with the fact that he also had a steel cage match with Kurt Angle in the build-up to uh, King of the Ring as well. Yep. Which, uh, where both he and Angle go off the top of the cage with a moonsault and a diving headbutt, respectively. And if we had a match that we could cover for this month, I would definitely say that that would be the match. That match was classic. I miss... Listen, okay, let's pretend for a minute we're back in 01. Benoit never did anything he did. Benoit was so fucking good, man. And it's sad. When do you think about it? Uh, yeah, obviously. It's, it's, you try not to think about it too much, but you know, you, there, there's more things more beyond than him just being a bad guy. But you know, it's, there's, there's no real way of saying it in terms of like remembering him in a nice way, really. Yeah. When you do something like that, it's like it's it's uh, it's not to the same degree, but it's like saying, "Well, Hitler was really good at painting. He had some really good art." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that sort of thing. Yeah, so it, it doesn't really help that side of things. Uh, just checking my notes just to see more specifically. So, um, Benoit had a blocked nerve in his C7 vertebrae, which was causing his right tricep to atrophy, which meant that it groans it would grow in size and completely lose feeling. And it was similar to how um, how Edge's neck damage was causing him to lose feeling in his extremities towards the end of his career as well. Also similar to the neck injury that inevitably ended the career of Austin. Yes, very much so. Uh, but also during this time, Rikishi also was on the shelf. Uh, he wouldn't return until uh, November or December. Uh, we also saw, as a result of what happened in... Uh, at King of the Ring, uh, Austin suffered a broken hand, apparently, in the uh, sh- show. 
Kurt Angle bruised his tailbone and suffered a concussion. Uh, Shane McMahon got a concussion and many lacerations on his body. And uh, Chris Jericho suffered a mild concussion due to that uh, loud chair shot that Benoit gave him towards the end of the match. Jesus Christ. Yeah, so a lot of people going uh, suffering quite badly at this point in time. They're going through bruises and bumps. Uh, I think we also have to mention the fact that following on from Grandmaster Sexay's uh, release in the previous year, uh, Eddie Guerrero would find himself uh, being sent home from TV due to being in rough shape, both in terms of his physical condition due to injuries and uh, his uh, drug taking, drug addiction. Uh, which, when you hear that, again, you just, you're very thankful that those stories aren't as at large in today's injury, in the industry. No, definitely not. And essentially, this would be the last we'd see of Eddie Guerrero in, in the entirety of 2001. Uh, he would be released in uh, November due to a car crash that he was t- took part in when he was driving under the influence. And he'd be released after that. He would have a short stint on the independent circuit and would return in WWE in April of 2002. And he was Just immediately given... Mm. They do immediately give him the IC title and he had been working the independent circuit before that as well. I know he did matches with Ray and Punk, and Cabana, but in his documentary, The Cheating Death Stealing Life, don't they make reference to a third daughter? Yeah, I believe he does have a another daughter with another woman outside of um, uh, his marriage to Vicky Guerrero. I, yeah, I believe that he was going through uh, marital strife at this point in time of his career as well. They, they were definitely separated for a, a considerable period before Guerrero cleaned up his act. Wow, I mean, I just thought about that now because you never hear, you know, maybe this third child is going to pop up in wrestling one day, you know, you never know. Yeah, maybe it's just saying that she wants to keep quiet or whatever, not because she's ashamed of who her father is by any stretch of imagination, but it's just a case of, it, because of the Vicky Guerrero thing as well and her relationship with WWE and... Shaw Guerrero being part of the system for a while as well. Maybe it's just, maybe wrestling just wasn't for her. And so she doesn't really need to be associated too much with it. That's true. Yeah, but you never know. I'm pretty sure we know. I mean, I mean, how old would she be at this point in time? Probably at least in her twenties or thirties, even at this point. Uh, according to, and this is the way the internet works. According to an Instagram account, I believe I just found. She's 19. Mm. Well, I guess there's maybe some potential there, but, you know, we'll wait and see, really. We, if we haven't heard anything about it, then can't really say too much, really. Uh, speaking of car crashes, Bruno Sammartino was in a car crash as well in this month. Wow. Yeah, yeah. How old is he yeah. at this point? Uh, I, I can't uh, say... Specifically, like specifically off the top of my head, he'd definitely be in his uh, 60s, 50s or 60s at this point. And so essentially a woman swerved in front of him. He crashed into a pole doing 55 miles an hour. Uh, spent, three, spent three days in hospital. And apparently um, the doctor said that the impact was so great that he had the imprint of his seatbelt on his body for the next, uh, for like a week afterwards. Yikes. Yeah, so... Fortunately, we didn't lose Bruno at that point in time. 
lived long enough to get into the uh, Hall of Fame and uh, be like warmly received back into WWE at that point in time. Obviously, at this point in time, two thousand one, he was very much anti how WWE did things, mainly due yeah. to the steroid stuff. Uh, the steroid stuff was also still going on, not as big of a deal, but as we're gonna see with Guerrero and with Benoit, they still felt the pressure to be on those types of enhancements. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so we move on now to talk about uh, China. So we've obviously mentioned in the, the Judgment Day review that that was the last match that China would ever have with WWF. Uh, it was basically this month that she was she was told pretty much outright by WWF that her contract wouldn't be removed past, re- renewed past uh, November. So it would expire then. And mm. it was basically a mutual thing because China had had surgery recently to remove a um assist from her reproductive tract and she'd yes. also started getting yeah she's also started getting uh, more movie attention to recently had a starring role in uh frank mccluskey ci Are you familiar with that i never heard of that no it was just a like a spoof uh like private investigator movie and then uh Essentially, she wanted to wrestle men again. WWE didn't want her to wrestle men again. She they, she was bored in the women's division because she felt that nobody was up to her level. Do you think that that's a fair assessment? In terms of popularity, yeah. yeah. Maybe Lita, Lita was the only one that's probably compar- comparable to her. but And also, obviously, her size meant that she would always be considered above. And even if the idea that they were trying to sell was because she'd suffered a broken neck, that it meant that she was no longer like able to compete with the men at that level. People would still remember because wrestling fans have that connection that if she could wrestle men competently, then how would she, why would she ever want to be in the women's division? Who would ever beat her, essentially? So you know, I know China's in the Hall of Fame now, and there's nothing we can we can do to get her back to where she had been, but. I still think it's a great shame that she's not more honored and more sought after. She was huge. Oh, yeah. I think it's hard to say that you, people would be inspired by her because she wasn't a great wrestler by any stretch of the imagination. But I think you can aspire to be at the level of popularity and just to be the the center of attention and the to be like how everybody are everybody's eyes on you the way that China had during the peak of her run. And I don't think there's many women, if any, that have really reached that level of popularity. Another one that, that isn't talked about, Sable. Uh, yeah, well, Sable, obviously, but for very different reasons. Uh, you probably you probably put Trish Stratus on a similar pedestal. You probably put Becky Lynch nowadays on a similar pedestal as well. Yeah, she's really getting there. Uh, but it's a very select group of people, and China definitely belongs among that uh, collection of people. Uh, in terms of other stuff that was being let go of China, there was also WWF cut its affiliation with um, Memphis Championship Wrestling, uh, one of its like feeder territories at the back of the time, and decided to double down on their work with OVW and Heartland Championship Wrestling. So I know uh, bits and pieces about this because... I've been listening to a lot of Jim Cornette's podcast. 
essentially Lawler was working with a guy named Randy Hales in Power Pro. And Power Pro was the feeder system where they sent, you know, Kurt Angle and Brockus and a lot of those people. They got sideways because Lawler thought he was a partner. Randy Hales said no. So he quickly switched the contract with the WWF to Memphis Championship Wrestling. That lasted for like a cup of coffee and everything then became about OVW and and they mentioned Heartland, which was Les Thornton's promotion. But even that was kind of grouped in with Ohio Valley. Yeah, I think I erroneously said Heartland Championship Wrestling is actually Heartland Wrestling Association. Wrestling Association, yeah, it's yeah. yeah, so they were, so they would both have certain people work for it. Um I think if going back slightly it's tough enough, the idea was that OVW would be mainly for all women wrestlers to train in. So when Nidia won, she would was sent immediately to OVW. But it wasn't obviously all women. Obviously, you had uh, Batista was training there, Brock Lesnar was training there, Shelton Benjamin, John Cena, Randy Orton. All of these people were being brought up. Rico. In that um, yeah. Yeah. A uh, lot, lot of major names. But also, they did train Nidia and they did train... Uh, Victoria got her polishing in OVW as well. Yeah. And they ended up sending Maven to uh, the Heartland Wrestling Association for a while before bringing him back to uh, TV in early 2002. I really think he would have benefited from uh, working a character. with Cornette. Yeah. Yeah, he, he, should have, <laughs> he should have got a character before he came in. But I think they wanted to capitalise on the buzz surrounding him winning the, the thing. So they, they didn't take the right course of action. But... The idea was that also cutting ties with uh, Memphis Championship Wrestling also meant cutting ties with a number of uh, prominent people that we know nowadays from stints in WWE and other promotions uh, that uh, were lost due to the uh, no longer being associated with Memphis Championship Wrestling, including American Dragon, which we know nowadays as uh, Daniel Bryan. Wow, when you think about that, that's also that time in wrestling where people felt like they had to be a character like that American dragon. He couldn't just be Brian Danielson, Daniel Bryan. Well, someone else was also someone with a similar character like that was Spanky. who was also cut Brian Kendrick, but he wasn't Spanky immediately, right? He no, was... he wasn't. He was in Memphis championship wrestling. He was Spanky. Why? <laughs> that was his gimmick. That's, that's so, but but the, the name Spanky, like, that's so funny to me that, again, you couldn't just be you. I know. But then you also had uh, Adam Birch, who would later take on the persona of Joey Matthews. Um, and was Joey Mercury, Eminem. Yep, exactly. And, yeah. And uh, Joey Abs as well, who would never return to WWE. Now, Joey Abs was... One of the Hardy guys, right? Like, he was an, an Omega guy. Was it? Yeah. I, I I don't know enough about him beyond just being in the Mean Street Posse. So, Rodney and Pete Gass were actually Shane's friends. Joey Abs was an Omega guy. I wonder why they decided to fill him in on the group. Just because you needed a guy who could actually take bumps. Was he actually from Connecticut? He was... No, I believe he was from... That Carolina area. I guess they never had him talk then too much. Uh, yeah, he's from Carthage, North Carolina. 
Yeah, I assume the accent would have been pretty prominent then if they decided to try and book him from Connecticut and he's actually, you know, speaking, speaking with the uh, the Carolina drill. Yeah, I don't think they ever had him say a word. Okay, so there was no... I usually try and talk a little bit about like storyline developments, but most of the stuff will be covered in the King of the Rings side of things. There was nothing really else going on uh, outside of the uh, the uh, Perry Saturn concussion angle that was continuing. Which you would would not fly nowadays. Let's put it that way. Yeah, imagine that being like, "Oh, look, he's got a concussion. He's being stupid. How funny!" Uh, you ready for some legal news? That's always I'm fun. Always ready for legal news. So, gentleman Chris Adams. Oh, this is a sad story. So, uh, gentleman Chris Adams, obviously back from uh, WCW days, and I don't know if he ever actually worked for WWE that long, or if at all. But he was definitely not well known in the territory days. Uh, he trained Austin is the probably the best contribution he gave to wrestling. Other than that, he was huge in the Texas territory, teaming with uh, Gino Hernandez against the Bunnerks. Yeah, so obviously this is uh, essentially 2001 is the last year of his life. Didn't he get shot or something? Uh, yeah, so I'll describe that side of things. So, first of all, in this month, he got uh, indicted on a manslaughter charge when his uh, girlfriend, Linda Kaphengst, uh, name's not exactly rolls off the tongue, uh, she died of an overdose of GHB and alcohol, uh, <sighs> which apparently was acquired by Adams, who was a heavy drug addict at this point in time. And then he was found unconscious near the body when she was like recovered. Like he recovered, but she didn't. And so he was uh, tried for manslaughter over it. Uh, while awaiting trial in on October the seventh, Adams was fatally shot during a drunken brawl with a friend called Brent Parnell. That's terrible. Uh, Parnell was a uh, claimed self-defense due to the nature of the brawl, and so was acquitted of all charges. Uh, prior to his death, Adam was facing a maximum of 20 years in jail due to the manslaughter charge. So, yeah, I guess you take that how you would. It, it's never fun, really, walking back through the uh, annals of wrestling history, just like coming across yeah, stories mean, like that. By God, why does anyone want to be in this industry? When you hear these stories, it's like it was a mess for many years. Thank God that all they do now is play video games, you know? Yeah. Do you want to hear a slightly more fun uh, legal story? Please. Uh, so, Eric Bischoff uh, was one of the people okay. who was named in the case uh, that implicated the Atlanta Gold Strip Club, and Atlanta Gold Club Strip Club, should I say, which is a racketeering case which was essentially asserting that the club was prostituting out its, stri- out its strippers in order to get celebrity influence. Huh. And so it built up their own popularity. So, obviously, that's illegal uh, in America. I, sh- I believe, I don't think... Is it, like, entirely that prostitution is illegal in America? Um, they're trying to make it easier for sex workers in America, but it's illegal. Yeah, so essentially, well, it's definitely illegal to, at least at this point in time, to market yourself as a strip club and then also have your strippers. And let's put it this way. I imagine half the strip clubs in America do this sort of thing. Or at least a, a fair portion of them. It's just that this one was very prominent because it had a lot of celebrities going to it. Eric Bischoff was named as one of the people that apparently would receive 
uh, based on the reports of it, someone who received oral sex by one of the dancers very often during it during his visits there. Other people named in the case were a lot of uh, basketball players like Dennis Rodman, Patrick Ewing, Reggie Miller. Well, it's good time. A good time was had by all. And uh, also, interesting enough, uh, later on, Kevin Nash was also uh, named as one of the people involved in this as well. Of course. Because you have to have Big Sexy there. Without, without Big Sexy, it's not a party. Uh, I would say that poor poor wrestlers who... Ah, it's, it's the pirate ship, guys. Keep your wife away from the pirate ship. But... Can you ever really have meaningful relationships with people after it's so widely known that you do all this shit? I mean, there's certain people that have. I mean, Terry Funk was with his wife for, like, over 60 years. That's true. And uh, she only recently passed away. I think she passed away earlier this year. I, so, I'm going to equate that to that good old Southern Texas good boy attitude. Yeah, I I don't imagine it's all over the place, but I think I think it's just the idea that the ones which do end up in breakups and situations like that are so much more interesting than the ones that just go along finally. Like, oh, you've been married for like forty years, and until you hear that, you kind of just think, oh wow, that's really impressive. But I think it's just yeah. the nature of the way the world is nowadays that we just assume that every relationship is going to end in either breakup or divorce. Which again, terrible. Yeah, obviously. Uh, but let's move on to some New Japan news, because we like to bring in a few bits of uh, Japan news nowadays, especially in the build-up towards the G1. Uh, the big story coming out of Japan was that Ricky Choshu was no longer the... was relie- relieved of his duties as the head booker of, w- of uh, New Japan Pro Wrestling. And if you don't know why that's a big deal, that's probably understandable, but essentially Ricky Choshu is considered by many as one of the greatest wrestling bookers in history. He's Maybe the guy. He, he booked the golden period for New Japan. Yeah, and so the only night is he's the kind of the brains behind the Holy Trinity, which I'm trying to remember correctly who was associated. But essentially, it was Masahiro Chono and uh, two others. Uh, yeah, so is it Muda? Uh, yeah, Keiji Muto, so the great Muta, Masahiro Chono, and Shinya Hashimoto. So essentially, those three would be the staples of the main event during the 90s, and it led New Japan to an unprecedented level of success. Basically the same sort of success they were experiencing when Anoki was their top star during the 90s. But um, And he also was involved in the uh, money-spinning UWFI invasion feud, which was the brainchild for the NWO stuff. Pretty cool, pretty cool. Yeah, so he's been in, he'd been in charge since 1989, and essentially he's, his reign came to an end because he was still trying to book himself as a big deal, which is obviously promoters tend to do that when they're in that sort of position of power. Hopefully AEW stays clear of that sort of thing. But, uh, and, and they failed to really create any new stars beyond the three musketeers as Muto, Chono and Hashimoto were known. But I really think it's almost a given with pro wrestling right like if you're gonna be a booker you need to let go of that that stardom yeah you you have to like check your ego at the door essentially uh 
I don't think he he definitely didn't put himself in two prominent positions, but it was the idea of he could he had those three stars, and then once they kind of ran their course, just had trouble creating any new people beyond them. And so it meant that the times were changing, and to replace him was one of the three musketeers itself, Masahiro Chona, came in as the head booker. And let's put and it let this the way, dark ages begin. Yeah, I, I can't like put the entire blame at his co- corner because it was a lot due to the Enoki-ism of things of bringing in like real fighters and trying to blend that into the New Japan style of thing, which led to a lot of issues. But it, it's safe to say that Chono won't be remembered as strong a booker as Choshu was. We also have to credit Choshu to, for being the creator of what we now know today as the G1 Climax. Uh, obviously there'd been the previous I think they used to call it the Super League or something to that effect beforehand but he's the one that created the what the real semblance of what the G1 is nowadays and he was a very big proponent in the idea of using the veterans at that point in time especially when he first came in to put over the younger talent and try and accelerate that process which is basically what you see in New Japan nowadays you see people they still like turn to people like Yuji Nagata, Toshi Kojima, Hiroshi Tenzan to put over new talent. And they do that very successfully. Well, I think it's only right. It's the circle of life. You know, give yeah. back to the business that made you. Unless you're Triple H and you just, you know, <laughs> want to... It's, it's actually Triple H does put a lot of guys over. I'll give you, you just had to get side. out of the business full-time first. Yeah, you had to get, yeah, as soon as he got out of the business full-time... I mean, if it's Sting, then yeah, you can beat Sting, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, Sting's older than him, fuck Sting. Yeah, it's not like Sting's a new star who's never wrestled in WWE before, it's like, no, fine. But, yeah, it's just a case of, there are still some, there's still a, a way of booking in WWE which still keeps the veterans on top. That maybe they should be transitioning a little bit more to, like, the new blood, or giving new blood more prominent position. But uh, we still went into the Dark Ages, nonetheless. Oh, yeah, definitely in New Japan. And that's, yeah, that's mainly down to Anoki. Uh, speaking of uh, Keiji Muto, uh, he achieved something pretty special in uh, June. So essentially he became, he w- he won the All Japan Pro Wrestling Triple Crown, which is basically at that point in time, especially the equivalent of the New Japan uh, Heavyweight Championship, which made him the uh, first man to hold the IWGP, Triple Crown, and NWA Heavyweight Championships. You know, it's interesting that you bring that up. Port Noki is going through a lot of health trouble, and he just retired from Japanese politics, which he'd been involved with since 89, and he mostly gets around these days in a wheelchair. I mean, he's in his like late 70s, 80s now, isn't he? Yeah. I mean, the Japanese live as a... As a generalization, the Japanese live a very long time. And considering the style of work he performs in, especially with New Japan's strong style approach and the way that he especially approached wrestling, it's not exactly surprising that he's would end up in a wheelchair, as unfortunate as that sounds. You know, yeah, I can see why you would say that. And I mean, especially due to his size life. as well. Yeah, especially due to his size as well. Like putting all of that... That weight on your legs and stuff like that. I always think of the Ali fight because that's yep. such a great moment in wrestling. Well, not uh, let me backtrack. It's a historic moment. The fight itself was so great. 
No, definitely not. But I think there's I I can't say I have a a, a breadth of knowledge of uh, Anoki's matches, but you can see some of the stuff that he did with Ric Flair. You can see some of the stuff that he he obviously is a uncrowned WWF champion as well. Yes. But uh, yeah, I think in terms of like Muto as well. I mean, the Great Muto is a huge star in Japanese history. Still wrestling nowadays. He's wrestling for Impact Wrestling. Every now yeah, and then. Yeah, he just finished wrestling with Impact. Yeah, and so he's still going strong. Not as strong as he once was at this point in time. Even in 2001, he was seen as a little bit like reaching the, the veteran stage. And he's still going 18 years later. Uh, yeah, at this point in time, he's 38, so he's he's like 56 now, 57, something like that. And I think it says a lot about the wrestlers of that era that whether you want to look at Hogan in his 50s or Flair in his 50s and, you know, Alec Mudo, the way they wrestled, they were still able to do it into their 50s. And I think Taker, minus a dive or two, could do it for a few more years as well. Potentially. Uh, we also had uh, Jushin Thunder Liger won his second Super Juniors final. Oh man, he's retiring too. This is very full circle. This 2001. Yeah, I know. I, I know. I'm really, really like I picked a good year to do this, which I'm obviously picked out. It was totally unplanned, and all this stuff happened without my knowledge or influence in any way whatsoever. And yet, it's still coming out. It, everything's coming up Millhouse essentially to me. Yeah, everything really is coming up Millhouse. And you mentioned the Super... What did you say? The Super Jacob? Uh, well, no, it's the best of the Super Juniors. Well, he's bringing back the Super Jacob. Yeah. It's going to be an American tournament. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm sure that would be a lot of fun. He's the guy that got me into Japanese wrestling, if I'm fully honest, because of his work with WCW and the Cruiserweights. And just he was such a fun character that I felt the need to seek him out more. And he never just. That's following brain surgery, by the way. Oh yeah, absolutely. And at this point in time, in like 2001, this was the first time that he'd won it since '94. And essentially, oh. the reason why he was put in such a prominent position is because the the junior d- division in uh in New Japan at this point in time was struggling pretty badly. Basically, the only real stars they had were Jushin Liger and the champion at the time, Minoru Tanaka. And that was it, really. Well, I think it's because of guys like Liger that that division was able to be rebuilt and you have stars now like Osprey and hopefully he comes back, Karomaru and Shingo. Absolutely. Uh, so that's the end of the J- Japan stuff. So before we move on to the King of the Ring review, just I think a, um, the what if moment of the week, I'm going to call this. Well, I don't know why I'm saying week is a month, but you know. It's just like, it, it it sounds better because it's what and what because I'm a writer yeah. and alliteration is cool. Alliteration is great. Yeah, and so uh, Goldberg, uh, obviously no no longer well still part of the Turner contract, but not being signed with WWF and not wrestling anymore, was linked in a role in the 2003 Hulk movie at this point in time. What would end yeah. up being the 2003 Hulk movie? Wow, what so happened he was, there? Well, essentially, he was being linked to play the character Crusher Creel. Now, I'm not uber familiar with comic book knowledge. Do you have any idea who Crusher Creel is? 
No, but I do know that that movie ends up being an abomination. Oh yeah, the movie is an absolute train wreck, and so it's probably for the best that he didn't end up getting the role. Uh, I think mainly Goldberg just got was linked to playing that character, and then they decided to change the entire thing because Crusher Creel is not in the movie whatsoever. He's not even one of the villains, let alone the main villain. And yeah, so maybe it was for the best he could focus on film. Well, I think he'd already done a, or had he already done a, that Santa movie? I feel like uh, no, that was already. later in two thousand five. Okay, so. He can, he he can rest his hat on that one instead, as opposed to the Hulk movie instead. Uh, but yeah, that's the end of the new segment, the reheated tags. Uh, plenty of stuff to look forward to in July. There's more stuff about the invasion starting, and there'll be I'm sure plenty of other developments with Tough Enough and other other news from all over the place. I haven't I haven't researched it yet, so it's going to be like fresh and exciting for me as well. But now we're going to be moving on to do our review of 2001 King of the Ring. So, the 2001 King of the Ring. Uh, a memorable show for many reasons. I'm sure we'll get to towards the end. But also a show which I think in many ways also didn't live up to any sort of hike beyond the two final matches. I think I remembered it more fondly than I recalled it watching back. Yeah, I think... Like, I would say if I was, if you tell me overall, like, if you take the two matches at the end out of this show, this is a really bad show. And you have great talent working this show. It's just, this is a good example of a transitional pay-per-view where we're clearly headed towards the Ruthless Aggression time period where the Edge guys take center stage. And we really, in the blink of an eye, we lost Triple H, The Rock, and The Undertaker doesn't even wrestle here. He just beats the shit at a DDP. Oh, we'll get to that one. I think that hurts. I'm looking forward to that one. But just to get through the admin straight away, so this is from June 24th, 2001 at the Continental Airlines Arena in East Rutherford, New Jersey. Uh, An announced attendance of 17,777. Which I'm almost certain is not the real number because there's no way there's that many sevens in a row. Well, they never give the real, real number, do they? No, of course not. But it's just a case of at least we can say that if the real number was 17,777, this pay per view is officially on the Neville level. 77. Yeah. So, so that's that. That's what got that going for it at the very least. Uh, 445,000 boys on pay per view. Uh, Still down, pretty good. Yeah, down slightly from the previous year, 475,000. Uh, King of the Ring 2000, main evented by a, a six-man tag for the WWF Championship between yep. Triple H, Vincent Mann, and Shane McMahon, uh, lo- losing to The Rock, who would become WWF Champion, Kane and The Undertaker. In which The Rock pins Vince McMahon to win Triple H's world title, and The Rock's partners, who would have also had a shot, did nothing to stop it. Exactly. And it would also end up feuding by the time SummerSlam came around. Right. But we're not talking about 2000, we're talking about 2001. And the opening video package was essentially a like clips of the different feuds going on surrounding a cursed throne. It's pretty, pretty I used just to love standard. that graphic. I think yeah, it's it actually finished. still featured in The Undertaker's Titan Tron, or it was for a long time. What, the uh, 
like the throne the, thing. The throne, yeah. Yeah, they did that for a while in um from like his return in two thousand four as the dead man. They that was like one of the first images you see is like a a golden throne almost. Uh, but then we once we get back from the uh, visuals of that, we see DDP coming through the crowd. Uh, so DDP had debuted as the stalker of Sarah from The Undertaker. How do you feel about his introduction? Awful. Like, uh, that's... Is there I, any I mean, other beyond, feeling... I mean, I mean, beyond this match. I mean, in terms of the actual stalker gimmick, before we get to The Undertaker, just, just completely neutering him in his first showing. Uh, the whole the... stalker angle. Okay, so... Growing up, and this is one of the weird wrestling rumors I remember, I had heard it was supposed to be Kane without the mask. And I think that would have at least made sense as to why this person was stalking Sarah. When it, all of a sudden it just becomes, well, Paige is a pervert who can't get enough of the Undertaker's wife. It was just bad. And what? then... What? I was just going to say, I, I feel like it's stupid in the sense that I would have been completely fine with it. And again, this is just like looking back at it nowadays. If it had been along the lines of he's stalking Sarah just to get the Undertaker angry. And the idea where he's saying, like, Undertaker make me famous. If that was the only thing to do with it, then that's You're fine. You're fucking... What, like a three-time, four-time WCW champion? You've been in a movie? They, they, it goes back to the Triple H joke we did earlier about Sting. They cannot get enough of jerking themselves off that they win. They beat WCW. They still do it to this day. They cannot I, get enough. That That is 100% true, and I do not disagree with that in the slightest. But I think that the idea of him going after these proclaimed biggest dog in the yard was the right thing to do and to do that by getting the ire of the undertaker through his family would have worked if they didn't continue the storyline based around the fact that ddp actually wanted to fuck undertaker's wife because but, but then because, he would swear that he didn't and he was just trying to piss her off yeah i know but still idea you've got you're married to kimberly page what are you doing looking at looking at the undertaker's wife that sort of yeah thing. Because they, because anyone who watched WCW or knew who DDP was knew he was married to Kimberly Page, because Kimberly was on TV with him. So it's like, yeah. So you couldn't fall for that. And also, most people, and I'd say this as kind as possibly can, especially with us doing the Sexy Superstar Tournament, which you could be voting on right now if you want to check go over to SmartCareMoment.com and you check out all the videos we've done previously on that. Uh, Sarah wouldn't get very far in that tournament. I don't think Sarah would get too far at all i you gotta admit the undertaker has a type he clearly likes himself some blonde all-american athletic women and again i don't have a problem with somebody stalking the undertaker's wife i think it would have been a really cool way to introduce kane without a mask i think it would have been a really cool way to introduce even you know what honestly even Kevin Nash could pull this off better. Big, sexy. Like, he, you know, already had history with The Undertaker. He could have just been trying to fuck with him. To put it on page, and then to repeatedly drive home 
make me famous, make me famous. You idiot, Austin's already famous. I want to be famous. It's like, that was the wrong thing to say because that's saying WCW was shit and now we're going to make you famous, kid. That's a completely fair assessment. Uh, but essentially he comes out, he cuts a promo, always, he keeps referring to himself in the third person. He always says Diamond Dallas played your DDP rather than saying I or me or something along those lines. And then he sits in the front row holding a sign that says, make me famous, waiting for the Undertaker, shakes the hands and high fives some people in the crowd. Nice touch. Yeah, I this think point that t- make me famous sign was in every video game for the next five years. <laughs> uh, fair enough, it's a good sign. Uh, then we move on to the actual first match of the night, which is Kurt Angle versus Christian in the King of the Rings semi-finals. I think you wanted to talk about this, about the fact that the semi-finalists chosen for the King of the Ring were all part of the same faction. Very Yeah, they were all this. friends. I like that. Yeah, so it was Kurt Angle, Christian, Edge and Rhino for everyone that will, hasn't checked this out yet. But they decided to put them together. It was the idea that they were slowly turning Christian and Edge babyface, or more, as it would turn out towards the end, turning Edge babyface. But Christian was long for the ride for the meantime before he would eventually turn on Edge. But... So it's the idea of the issue being that these guys had so soon before this been heels, all been heels, that I think it really hampered the crowd's ability to get into these matches. Yeah, because I don't think they understood who they were supposed to root for because Edge was sort of turning. Christian was right there with him. Rhino was still a pretty big dick. And Angle would go on to have probably the first real big run of his career this year. Yeah, so I think basically based on the reactions people were getting in this match, people wanted Angle to win this tournament. Well, yeah, he he was the biggest star. It's a shitty thing to say, but he was the one big-time singles superstar. Yeah, there was a lot of people chanting, let's go Angle in this match. Uh, Christian really didn't get much reaction at all, apart from a few big spots towards the end. Uh, so the big angle, as it is nowadays in 2019, is it's all about Shane McMahon. And Shane McMahon approaches ringside, he distracts Kurt Angle, causes him to miss his moonsault, as he always does. Uh, but then when Christian hits the unprettier and has Angle beat for the pinfall, uh, Shane puts Angle's foot on the ropes. And, and, and he also pulls out the referee, doesn't he? Oh yeah, I, I think I can't remember if he pulls out the ref on this one or he. Um, I, I, oh yeah, it's actually. Um, I know, no, it's actually uh, he pulls Christian off the cover. He wasn't he wasn't putting it on the ropes. That was, I'd forgotten that one exactly. Right. But, so, so that's actually unlike today's wrestling. Good, a very good point of storytelling where it's like, I'm gonna make you overexert yourself. Because we've got a street fight later, and I want to be at my best and you at your worst. Yeah, I kind of wish they'd made that point clearer, as opposed to... It's one of these like small pet peeves that I have of commentary at this point in time, when they would say things like, what the hell was he doing? Why the hell was he doing that? Essentially, it's your job as commentators to explain why he's doing that. Yeah, and Jim Ross should have been smart enough to know exactly what was going on. Well, I would have thought Heyman should have been the one to say it, because Heyman is the one who's supposedly like a know-it-all. I think it would make sense if Hayman was the one to have said it, but either way, uh, 
I mean, the best part of this match was the angle slam over the apron onto uh like onto the mat i thought that was he had a couple of interesting angle slams in this in uh on this show Kurt angle did yeah he was really finding himself in that like i am getting good at this i know i'm one of the best in the world and i recently we rewatched that a couple of times not only for this show but for the untold that wwe just released and i'm wondering why that spot was never done again no, I don't recall ever seeing it again, but maybe he did do it, just maybe just in a match which we don't remember as well. Because I didn't that's remember true. he did it in this match. So that's that's a really cool way to do the angle slam. Uh, so they take a uh, they go backstage where Coachman's interviewing Austin and Deborah. They're talking about like the big rumor that was going around at the time, especially with WCW building prominence with Shane was the idea that either Benoit or Jericho could win the WWF title and jump ship to WCW. And so he, he let... Oh. Makes perfect sense, too. They were former WCW superstars. Yeah, and so uh, Coachman tells him about those rumours, and Austin just stares at him for about 10 seconds. Just not moving, not blinking, nothing. Because Austin as a heel, as good as he was, it didn't work. Like No, it it was the absolutely worst thing to do for business, but going back and watching it, knowing how bad it screwed up, it's still incredibly entertaining. He was an amazing heel. Uh, then we move on to uh, another video package of DDP being stalked. And they show uh, Heyman interviews him, just tells him about, oh, okay. Uh, how many of you says, okay, so now you've got video clips of you being stalked instead. Why are you going off The Undertaker? DDP gives a response, and that's about it, really. It's just a case of now, now the idea of the tables have been turned on DDP. I really want to know whose idea this whole storyline was and why. It... Vince. Yeah, but why? Why? I, I just don't understand. Well, I kind of think that deep down, Vince just wanted to stalk. Undertaker's wife. It, it was him on the recordings, do. right? Yeah, yeah. So That's amazing. And he, the, and he was the one, obviously, directing sort of things, probably. So I assume that he just wanted to live out one of his own fantasies of stalking a woman, and just to fit it into one of his storylines. You mean to tell me you don't think he actually ever did? Well, I, I think that he likes being able to display it in a way which means that he can defend himself. I'm sure he did it in private as well, but you know. But I don't want to say too much without being like taken down for libel. So, you know. Uh, but we move on to the second semi-final, Edge against Rhino. Again, the crowd is so much more into Rhino than they are Edge in this match. Uh, I don't know my, why. My assumption being that Edge had been such a good heel, he was a real dick, that Rhino at least had the gore and was tough and was kind of cool had that ECW vibe. Remember, Edge and Christian were like California surfer douchebags. Yeah, and so there was tons of ECW chants in this one. I think Rhino's Hardcore Championship run had done him a good favour as well because that had been a lot of fun, as we've obviously recounted on the previous editions. That match uh, with uh, Raven is still one of my favourite hardcore matches. Yeah. There's really nothing to say too much about this match at all there's a lot of brawling at ringside there's very little heat at all the crowd isn't into this match at all they they get into it a little bit at one point when 
essentially there's a spear and a gore at the same time, and they collide in the middle of the ring. Only spot you could have done. Had we been doing SmackDown Moment in 2001 and been doing a preview, I would have wanted this spot, and if I didn't get it, I would have been sad. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but then they have a spot moment where go- a Rhino gores an exposed turnbuckle that he'd uh, dealt with earlier in the show. Uh, Edge then hits the Impaler DDT and gets the win. So, why do you think... Because Edge went through a lot of finisher changes. The Impaler, the Edgematic, the Educator, the Spear. Why do you think ultimately they settled on the Spear? I think they eventually settled on the Spear because at the time no one else was doing it as a finisher. So they had Rhino doing the gore, obviously, but Rhino wasn't considered anywhere near a main event level. Goldberg obviously had the spear for a while, but he was out of the company by 2004. Uh, Batista took it on as a signature move towards the end of, like, in towards like the middle of his career, but he obviously had the Batista bomb as a finisher. So Edge had pretty much free reign to say, okay, I'm going to take the spear and I'm going to make it my thing. Do you think that Edge is a guy who should have been able to pull off the spear as a finisher, seeing as he's not this like domineering football sized football player sized guy. I think if he was faster he could have gone away with it. It's yeah, just the idea be. that he, he he's actually a pretty tall guy. He's not lumbering by any stretch of the imagination, but he's a pretty tall average moving guy. And so him doing the spear, if he could run at like Usain Bolt levels, then yeah, the spear's a great move for you. Rhino moves quicker when he's using the gore than Edge does with his spear. And okay. so and so if he'd done that, then maybe a bit more. But I just think he just made it work for him because of the... It's not so much the spear that it made it work for Edge. It's the eyes after the spear that made it work for him. It's the way that he sold hitting the spear that meant that yeah, whenever I think of a spear, I'll always go to Edge rather than Roman Reigns or anyone like that. I really feel like Edge had the coolest setup for the spear. Like, he made it seem like he was going to rip somebody in half, but the follow-through was never there. No. He he gave, like, great eyes, great posture to get set up for it, and then it would actually hit, and it wasn't that impressive, but then he'd sell it quite well. So, I think it was fair enough. Uh, after that match, we had like a backstage segment where uh, Spike Dudley said that he'd found his mystery partner for the night to face uh, Bubba and Devon for the tag titles. Bubba and Devon only recently reclaiming the titles from Chris Jericho and Chris Benoit in the episode of SmackDown. Wasn't that after Vince McMahon and Stone Cold failed to do so? Yes, they attempted to get the titles off them in a, um, a match on SmackDown a couple of weeks prior to that, and Austin interfered in the uh the tag team title match to attack Benoit and cost them the titles. And well, then they made it very clear in the build up to this that it was Benoit was the threat. Jericho is still the the little guy. Like Benoit was the threat. But then they had a interview between Taz and Chris Jericho. Taz basically asking him if the rumors about WCW are true, and then Jericho just does some long winded answer saying something along the lines of. Yes, that is a great question, Taz. Thanks for asking. In terms of me going to WCW, absolutely not. I absolutely sure. did not think. Like yeah, it. I absolutely did mm-hmm. not think that. I absolutely did not think that you were going to ask me about that question. 
and just yeah, it's it was it was a fun way of doing it, but he didn't in the end he basically didn't give an answer. Uh, but then we move on to the tag team title match, which was the Dudley Boys defending against the odd couple tag team of Spike Dudley and the Intercontinental Champion Kane. Okay, so he hasn't lost the title to Albert yet. No, I think he he loses it. I think on the last episode of uh, last episode of SmackDown for June. So because he loses by the time it we get to SummerSlam, neither one of them is even champion, and I don't know, I. This match was okay. Kane is such a versatile character. Even here, he can just be thrown into wherever, whatever. We've seen him dominate in the Royal Rumble, team with The Undertaker, be thrown in a random hardcore match, team with The Undertaker in the main event, beat Triple H in a semi-main, and now he's just like, hey, I'm Spike Dudley's partner. Hi, guys. Yeah, he's de- he definitely just like was somebody you could just slot into any situation, which is very useful for him, and probably why he has had such a long and successful career. Definitely. Uh, I said so the thing that I took away from this match and probably over everything else is that uh, it must have been great to have matches with Spike Dudley. Why? Because you fucking flew. Yeah, because essentially he's just the ultimate guy to ragdoll around the ring if you're a big guy. Like, you could show unbelievable power. And Kane was just lifting his overhead with ease. You'd have Bubba throwing him around the ring as well and stuff like that. Launched, I think Bubba launched him like 10 feet in the air on a back body drop. Like, it's, it's so much fun to work a match with Spike Dudley. And he understood that too. Oh yeah, he knew what his he knew what his selling point was. And he made most of it. I'm so shocked that he is now just like a normal guy working in real estate. Yeah. Whatever. Is there. Isn't just that like weird? He, yeah, like he seems completely fine. He seems like his body has recovered from all the punishment that he went through in ECW and WWE. So good for him, really. Yeah, I mean, who would have thought that a guy who at one point in his life, his finisher was named the Acid Drop, would be completely normal. <laughs> There's one point in this match, which I obviously have to point out because I'm a dick that way, where there was a two count on with Kane pinning Bubba and Devon didn't get in the ring in time, and so Teddy Long had to stop the count. Well, I don't think that's why he stopped the count. I think he stopped the count because he just loves tag team matches, player, and he just wanted to see it go on <laughs> for a little longer. That, that is, I, I never actually thought about that that way. But it's just like, it's funny because... Recently, we had a um a Chad Gable versus Jack Gallagher match, where Jack Gallagher in two five live, obviously, where Gallagher failed to get into the ring by the ten count, and obviously they just had to call it like a shoot that he got counted out. Yeah. Whereas, so maybe in this instance, it would just mean that Kane and Fight Dudley would just have to be tag champions, and they'd have to lose it on Raw the next night or something. Which they could have easily done. Oh yeah, but they decided not to, and it made it look stupid because the crowd immediately clocks onto that fact that. Oh yeah, you've just fucked up the count. Uh, then there's gets to the end where they do the the diving headbutt to the crotch on Kane. Uh, Devon blocks a Dudley dog attempt and it goes into a 3D instead. Uh, yeah, so besides a couple of botches, it's a good, it was a decent tag team match. And then at the end of the match, Dudley's got to put Spike through a table, but instead Kane overpowers them both and chokeslams Bubba through the table instead. Because then the crowd can't happen. 
Yeah, send the crowd home happy. And then he just carries Spike to the ring like a, a child on his shoulder. Oh, no, that, it, was, it was fine. They uh, had backstage segment with Christian wishing Edge luck backstage. More stalked DDP footage. And then we had Billy Gunn from the world. Because 2001, baby. Well, because 99, they for some reason decided to give him the King of the Ring uh, title. So they decided to have his thoughts from a former King of the Ring winner. And then he basically just said that this tournament's perfect because he wasn't involved. And then just storms off. Well, hey. Wait a minute. If you were the one, Billy Gunn, would you not want to be involved in the 2001 Billy Gunn King of the Ring tournament? Oh, yeah, it would be the 2001 Billy Gunn. Uh, but it, it wouldn't be too long before he's uh, dressed in uh, Red Hearts and teaming with Chuck Lumber. Yep, and honestly, that was probably the last thoroughly entertaining point in his career. Yeah, I could probably agree with that. Uh, we move on to the King of the Ring final. And it was at this point I thought, wow, they spent a lot of pyro on Kurt Angle this night. So he has three separate entrances, all with Pyra. Yeah. And that they're just showing their ass again. Look how much money they have. Mm. Uh, so before the match kicks off, Angle decides, maybe almost off the cuff, really, because of how lukewarm a reaction that Edge had got in the previous match, to basically establish once and for all, I'm the heel in this match, he's the baby face, by saying... Could Edge just lay down for him so he, because he deserves to be the king of the ring, and he has a match with Shane later on in the night, so Edge should be a good friend and just lay down for him. Uh, Edge obviously refuses, punches him out, and they start having a match. I thought this match was the worst out of all, all three of them. Which is ironic because they would go on to have great chemistry like eight months later. Yeah, I just, I just, this just didn't click in any way for me. And it's, and the crowd obviously not being involved or being that interested in it had a part to play in that. Uh, I think Angle tried his hardest to try and get Edge cheered and get Edge over, but very little was happening in that sort of way. The crowd finally comes to his feet, their feet when Shane McMahon enters the ring and spears Kurt Angle. And Which then it's... Education, one, two, three. Yeah. I was surprised that all Shane did was spear him. Well, I think even worse about that side of things is Previously on in the match, uh, Christian had tried to get into the ring and actually had distracted Edge instead, which I think was intentional. Not so much on the, obviously on the sense of the way it was booked, but I think it was actually intentional. We were meant to believe down the road that it was intentional by Christian to do that. Yeah, to distract Edge. Yeah, even though he says later on when Edge is celebrating that it was actually um, a mistake, he was trying to help out instead, and Edge says, oh yeah, why wouldn't you? It's just like, yeah, of course, well... See you later on, buddy. Gotta go celebrate. But obviously, he was extremely jealous at this point in time, and that resentment was building towards uh, the uh, breakup post SummerSlam. Which the one thing you're gonna hear me complain about a lot in future episodes is, okay, so we turned somebody, so they had to say that they wanted to be a part of the alliance. Yeah, that was the that was the big issue. I mean, at this point in time, WCW is just... I mean, it's weird, because DDP is obviously WCW, but he's a clear heel because of the way he's acting. But people like Shane McMahon and Booker T and people like that are babyfaces. Yep. 
but it's just the idea that WCW would be its own entity with heels and babyface on it, rather than, you know, end up the way they ended up being as WCW and ECW the enemy. But yeah, I can't wait till we get into the the real nitty gritty of like August September of one. Uh, I think also the, the the bad thing about this match as well is the Edge taps out to the ankle lock when the referee's out. Which makes him look even weak coming out as, vict- as the victor. I know it's the idea of protecting Angle because Angle's the big star at this point in time, but it doesn't help Edge when you're trying to make him a big star by having him winking in the ring, and he's actually should have lost the match. Yeah. But WWF wasn't thinking about anything like that at the time. It was just, we've killed two birds with one stone, we'll start building Edge up tomorrow night. Alright, so we have go backstage, Taz interviews Benoit about the WCW owners. Benoit initially gets angry about it, but then just laughs it off and says, hey Taz, that was a great question, and then just walks off. So we're still no clearer about where they stand in terms of joining WCW or staying with WWF. Uh, I guess in Benoit's case, it wouldn't actually matter, since he, yep. this would be his last match for the rest of the year. So uh, Then Edge has the interview about being a King Ring winner, saying that that title reeks of royalty. And yeah. and they're beginning, funny. yeah, and they're beginning the era of awesomeness. That was, that was some good stuff. Because there was ang- still, it's weird. Edge after this goes through a period of not knowing who he is. Like he couldn't find himself because he was still a goofball, but he was also like, but I also really want to be WWF champion. You know, well, it's it says it in his entrance music. When I mean, do you think you know me? He was asking that his question like all the time. He yeah, didn't know who he was. I of all the things that have stuck throughout the years, I'm surprised you think you know me for a guy as pretty straightforward as Edge stuck. Yeah, so move on past that to uh, light heavyweight championship. Jeff Hardy against uh, X Park. Uh, I it's it's weird that the light heavyweight championship is on a prominent position on this show. It just, it feels like putting the Cruiserweight title on the main card now. It's like, it happens for an occasion, but then you just watch it and think, oh, this is weird, there's a Cruiserweight match going. Well, you, it's different when you're dealing with the X-Factor. That was one thing that I, I was going to say above all else, really. It's, why does he have his actual theme music on the WWE Network on this one? And in all the previous times we've seen X-Factor, they've had a, uh, like, a, basically an imposed theme music because I assume that they didn't get copyright to that track and yet he's doing that and yet he comes out to the Uncle Cracker song on this one maybe it's a weird like oh they got around they got rights for the pay-per-view so they don't have to change it like they would on a Raw I don't know it just it just like struck me as quite odd really because it's just a case of yeah I'm hearing Uncle Cracker right now it's like why well, haven't I heard it in any of the other shows? But well, Uncle Cracker is the king of music in 2001. Oh yeah, absolutely, and Limbiscuit are the best band in the whole world. Oh yeah? Uh, but they're still advertising at this point in time, at least on the TV, fully loaded as opposed to Invasion. I know, that sticks out to me. Even though they'd already made the decision months ago that they were going to go with Invasion instead, they just haven't started advertising it as that way yet. Uh, so immediately X-Puck sucks chance, and I, 
had an epiphany this match that X-Pac Heat should really now be renamed Baron Corbin Heat. Yep. Because the idea is that, at least in this match, when they're chanting X-Pac sucks and they want X-Pac not to be part of this, they're still chanting X-Pac sucks. You never hear Baron Corbin sucks or Corbin sucks. You hear AEW or CM Punk or Let's Go Cena, Cena sucks, or stuff like that. Do you think that's just because of the way the crowd has evolved? Partly, but I think it's also, it's the way that they can show they're rejecting a superstar. Maybe maybe back in 2001, this was their way of rejecting a superstar in the way that X-Pac was, but at least with them trying X-Pac sucks and stuff like that, you can infer that they just hated the guy and he could get some real heel heat off the back of that. Whereas this time, it just shows that people are, don't even really hate Corbin, they're just really apathetic towards him. Yeah, I do agree. I think X-Pac should be renamed. So we will, we will champion that cause here on Smart Cat Moment. We will now no longer refer to X-Pac Heat. We will now refer strictly to Corbin Heat. It's Corbin Heat, guys. Yep. Yeah. Hashtag Corbin Heat. Spread it around. Uh, this match was fine. Again, that's pretty much the only thing that I'll be saying for the most part of most of these matches up until this point. It's like, it's nothing special, nothing amazing. At least with the fact that it is two light heavyweights going out, it's a bit more high octane and a few more flashier moves but the weird thing is it's these two are two guys that like either both previously to this and in the future beyond this wrestle a heavyweight style as well and these two are the ones fighting for essentially a cruiserweight championship and it was a good match i often talk about how i feel x-pac is underrated and unfortunately he never got the chance to shine I can only imagine how much bigger he would have been had he been around today. But his style really championed the, the smaller guy. Uh, I think there was one there was one big botch in the match when I think X-Pot attempts to leap over Jeff Hardy in the corner and they just end up colliding with each other instead. Uh, but that was just like this one moment where it all just went a little wrong. Uh, I did really enjoy the finish, which was... Uh, X-Pac had already hit an X-Factor on Jeff Hardy and got a pin, but Jeff Hardy's foot had been on the ropes. So X-Pac goes for it again, but Jeff Hardy reverses it with one of his sit-out jawbreakers, which I think was a really innovative way to block the X-Factor. Yeah, that does make a lot of sense, actually. Yeah, and then soon after, he hits the Swanton Bomb and retains the title. Uh, Again, like like you say, good match, but nothing super special. Nothing that really screamed pay-per-view about this match. Yeah, it's X-Pac and Jeff Hardy in 2001. Hardy would obviously go on to be a huge star, and X-Pac would have been in recent years. But right now, this could have been on Sunday Night Heat. Absolutely. Uh, which is what uh, Jerry Lynn was complaining about when he was the light heavyweight champion. Never even got on pay-per-view to defend the light heavyweight championship. Didn't he do just like a weird, afterwards? <laughs> yeah, I imagine so. Uh, now we get to the real low point of the night. The Undertaker versus DDP brawl. I, I don't think there's any, I don't think there's any words to describe how absolutely horrible and abhorrent this segment is. I, again, to me, especially watching it with older eyes, it's WWF showing their ass and being like, we own you, suck our dick. Yeah, you were in the ready to rumble, and now we're going to make you a footnote. 
I mean, it's so egregious with the fact that DDP bought himself out of his WCW contract so he could come to work for WWF as soon as he possibly could. And this is what they give him the first night out. They give him absolutely zero offense against The Undertaker. The only time he does get offense on him is after he's hit a low blow and Undertaker recovers within a couple of seconds. I feel like if I was listening to Bruce Pritchard's podcast, he would tell me... Well, yeah, but you don't understand that there were stories we were trying to tell and we were going somewhere, but it's like, where? Where were you going? This dude is dead. The story you're telling on this one is that WCW is a piece of shit on the end of your show. Essentially. And it's just, it's WWE asserting its dominance, or WWF at the time, asserting their dominance over WCW. Undertake, this is, I don't think I've ever hated The Undertaker more than I have during this segment. Like, this is a real, I I know Undertaker a lot during his biker gimmick was quite infuriating to a lot of fans in terms of his work ethic and the way that he presented himself as oh, I'm the biggest dog in the yard, and you've got to step in my ring to... and I'm the locker room leader and all that other bullshit. And so I can imagine Undertaker rubbing a lot of fans up the wrong way before he came back as the dead man and started having really good matches with other people again. Yeah, I look back at the American Badass and just get sad now. Yeah, it's and this is the, I think, the lowest point possible for this. Uh, it's probably this and that uh, chronic match they had as well when the Undertaker and Kane, which we'll cover as well. But yeah, it's just absolutely hideous the way that DDP's just beaten from pillar to post, all around ringside, given no sort of thing in return other than a couple of chair shots and a low blow. He's booted out of the ring and then he runs away with his tail between his legs as Undertaker celebrates and Sarah's videotaping the whole thing. Probably so they can fuck to it afterwards. You know, <laughs> yeah. Why not? Yeah, because why not? Why not? Why not present the Undertaker as like the biggest deal that's ever been in wrestling? Even though, despite how legendary a career he has, the one thing that we can say for certain about the Undertaker is that he was never the biggest star in WWF in the entire time he was there. I think the fact that they were able to show some of of his real personality, they were trying to get across that he was the biggest deal. Because it, it sounds hysterical now, knowing where we would go. But at the time, it was like, well, this guy's outlasted Hogan, and he's outlasted Savage and Michaels and Brett, even though 50% of the people I just said would come back. They still felt like that made The Undertaker the biggest deal. Yeah, it's he's, he's not so much, I can't say he's not a legend due to his dream work, because his dream work is growing. For the most part, but it's the and his character, obviously. But it's a sense of the big thing that really separates him from many other legends in the past in WWF is just his longevity, and yeah. that's not nothing to be sniffed at. But it's just a case of the reason why some guys shined brighter than he did was because they sh- shone for a lesser period of time, whereas he's just been a constant like light that goes on. He's like one of those um like energy saving light bulbs. Whereas, like, Austin is one of those more uh, just regular light bulbs that's like 60 watts, whatever, and so it just blinds you when you look at it, but it burns out after a couple of months. Whereas Undertaker's still going for years, just doing the same level of light. That may be a good or bad analogy, I don't know. No, it was a pretty good analogy. 
I, I just think that Undertaker, to still be going today, I'm grateful that he didn't stay, but three years in the badass gimmick. Yeah, and as much as we can praise and be grateful for everything that Undertaker's given us, uh, a hearty fuck you for this segment, Mr. Mister Kalawa. Yeah, and whoever said, yeah, I'll just have him take a shit. Like, he might as well have whipped out his dick and pissed all over Diamond and Dallas Page. Like, he might yeah. as well. Yeah, might as well. That's that, that's pretty. That's the only thing that he could have done more to really emphasize it. Uh, or he, I mean, to be fair, he could have taken Kimberly as well and just said, "I'm gonna have, I'm gonna have my way with both your wife and my wife." And I'm sure if they weren't going through marital troubles, they, they probably would have booked that. Mm. So we get to see some more fantastic heel Austin uh, behind the scenes, just waiting for Vincent Man to turn up. Uh, to try and like help him in his match in the uh, triple threat, it's just I thought that was a lot of fun. Just like seeing him break one of the um uh just security members saying, "You got to tell me when Vince is arriving. Let let Vince know that I'm here and I'm waiting for him and all that other stuff." It's just paranoid. Austin is the best. Yeah, it he really comes across in this angle like somebody whose father never loved him, and he just was so glad that he could hug Vince McMahon. Now business picks up. Kurt Angle versus Shane McMahon, straight for it. Woo. One of the most memorable matches in all of 2001. Uh, I, I, if you haven't seen this match, you should stop whatever you're doing right now and watch this match. Come back to the podcast once you're done watching it, and so you'll not, you'll be in the position where we have, where we had to witness this. In in our case, it's probably multiple times. I've seen this multiple times. Yes. Oh yeah. Uh, how absolute. Especially for 2001, which I know the Attitude Era had a lot of really batshit crazy moments, but this is on a different level. I I remember where I was when I saw this match. I remember where I was when I hunted it down to watch it again. And this match, more than any other before it, made me say, okay... I love every time Shane McMahon is in the ring. Now, recent transgressions aside, this match really set the tone for, okay, Shane will never let you down. Shane will, like, this fucking match was so intense. And the belly to belly specifically, I know I'm skipping through like half the match, but trying to break that glass and it's not breaking and it's just thud. Back on the glass, head on the concrete. It's so. It it's sad now because you know they're going through real shit. You know he's got like multiple concussions and Angle broke his tailbone. But man, so much fun to watch as a fan. Yeah. So the the match is a. It starts with a slow build. Essentially, where Kurt Angle's essentially just out wrestling Shane McMahon, and they do a spot where. Angle gets himself into the referee's position, which is what you do in amateur wrestling, and uh, gives Shane the opportunity to try and out-wrestle him in the ring, and Shane tries first of all, but Angle just beats the crap out of him, gets out of it easily, messes around with him, and then he tries to do it again, and Shane uh, outsmarts him by just kicking him in the gut in that position, because of Angle's hubris, and just moves on to having an actual match where they 
there's spots where he's like diving over the announce table, clothesline angle, using his kendo stick to beat angle up. There's like road signs and trash can lids. This is the first time I believe we see Shane McMahon do a, a, uh, a shooting star press, which he misses uh, and uh, lands on a trash can instead. And according to the WWE Network Untold special, it's Al Snow that really taught him how to do that. And Al Snow really helped him work through this match. As I never saw Al Snow. Did Al Snow ever do a shooting star press? He must have at some point. because I know he did a moonsault. He used to do a pretty good moonsault. And I'm sure he might have at least tried the shooting star. But yeah. Shane's got a pretty good one. And we saw it on display at like the Royal Rumble this year. And it still looks pretty good. Yeah, I think it looks better now than it did in this match. But I think Shane's actually in better shape probably nowadays than he is in, than he was back then. But still, uh, Angle is bleeding pretty much from the get-go in this match because he gets caught by one of Shane's infamous punches. So he's basically bleeding the entire match because of that. Yeah, Shane's punches go from, wow, you can totally tell he is hitting the air, to, oh shit, he just cracked him in, above the eyebrow. Yeah, We see Shane use the uh, uh, ankle lock in this match. See him apply a sharpshooter eventually as well in this match. Not exactly the uh, the most uh, well put together. I'm sure Bret Hart would give it's that a four a out of ten. Well, it's um, it's interesting because back then they would always go for the sharpshooter and stuff like that, thinking that it was just this weird like f u. Every time you saw a sharpshooter, you were supposed to feel an f u to the Hart family, and. You don't get those vibes as much anymore, but it's always fun to see. Right, and then we move on to after some brawling down the ramp, including the suplex, which is the thing that bruises Kurt Angle's uh, tailbone in the first place. We get onto the the real match here, where this match reaches the whole new level of aggression, where Kurt Angle is setting Shane up for a belly to belly suplex, and there are a few glass panes where in the like staging era area. And instead of going through the glass, because Angle is tired and beaten up and his back is obviously killing him due to the previous uh, damage he's taken, Shane just hits the glass, doesn't go through, lands right on the back of his head. And that yeah. is that might be one of the most obvious concussions you can ever see in a wrestling match. Specifically, you hear it go boom, boom, right on the head. It's just, it's nasty. No one really know about concussions today. It's fucking disgusting but it's if if a match today had half of that real intensity it'd be so much better and the ring work today is already as good as it gets but that intensity lacks because we know so much more about physical injury absolutely so Kurt Angle not to be deterred after let's face it at this point Kurt Angle's back is maybe like as far as he knows maybe broken Shane McMahon's completely concussed Kurt Angle's slightly concussed uh do it again just and this time he does manage to throw him through the glass so now they're both covered in sh- shattered broken glass they're bleeding all over the place wherever the glass is touching them it's not obviously real glass but it's still gonna cut you up pretty badly and then he has to try and do it again he tries two more times same thing happens the glass doesn't break Shane just falls into a heap on the back of his head constantly and so Angle says, fuck this, and throws him face first through the glass instead. And we get a beautiful camera shot 
from another angle, which was in the SmackDown intro for at least a year. Yeah, it's just like this is the real. I mean, Shane McMahon had already done plenty of crazy stuff as part of like diving off huge stages and things like that, the uh, coast to coast and all that other stuff. It's weird that, that there's no coast to coast in this match. Out of all the things you'd expect to happen, there's no coast to coast. Nah, I guess they're still keeping that special, huh? Which, well, now that this wouldn't have been the match to break it out in, yeah. but maybe he feels like he did that in his last match or his last couple matches. Don't do it here. But the crowd is going absolutely crazy at this point. Angle will shame that man down to the ring because obviously street fight rules, you can only pin someone in the ring. It always feels weird to me that the street fight is the one that you can only pin them in the ring. Because legitimately, a street fight should only be taking place in the street, right? I would think so. Yeah, so it just seems weird that this is the one where you have to pin them in the ring. Uh, so Chain manages to fight back. He gets, um, I think he hits an angle slam himself for a long two count. Kurt Angle is the, has always been, and I'll hold this till the day I die, the master of the long two count. Yeah, he's very good at it. No I'm one ever, yeah, few people, if any, kicked out, like, had that lasting thing of thinking, oh my god, this is the finish, and him kicking out at the final, the absolute last moment. And on the other end of it, too, he would sell a two count so perfectly. Absolutely. And then get to the finish, which is Angle sets Shane McMahon up on the top rope, uh, sets a wooden plank to support himself while he's standing up there, delivers a hellacious angle slam off the top rope to the floor on a guy who's already suffered a concussion and has been through two uh, glass panes, both um, through back first and face first, and then finally pins him. Uh, absolutely insane. The greatest match in Shane McMahon's career. One of the greatest matches in Kurt Angle's career. Uh, um, yeah. I'm doing a brief just scope of Shane's career. And yeah, I, I would have to say that that's his best performance. The angle slam off the board is, I remember just loving that. And Shane McMahon is legitimately limp at this point. And yeah. Great match. Uh, WB Untold tells the story of Vince McMahon, like, yelling at the referee to stop the fucking match after wow. the glass incidents, and that when the match didn't stop, that he wasn't even at Gorilla, like, he left for quite some time to recompose himself because he was pissed off that he had to watch his son endure all of that. Well, yeah, I think mean, I can't really blame him for that regards, but... One of the Shane rare moments a... where it's like, oh, Vince is a compassionate human. Yeah. Shane gets a uh, standing ovation as he gets taken out of the ring, and probably fairly so, <laughs> you have to say so. But it just amazes me that, like, 18 years ago, when Shane McMahon was 31 years old, he couldn't be a wrestler, albeit one of the top wrestlers in the company, who had already wrestled two matches in the previous two hours, and Shane had access to weapons as well to help him win the match. And meanwhile, in 2019, a 49-year-old yeah. Shane McMahon has won the SmackDown Tag Team Championships, won at WrestleMania against The Miz, won at uh, Money in the Bank against The Miz in a steel cage match, and, be- and pinned Roman Reigns on pay-per-view. Because at the end of the day, Shane McMahon comes from this era, and things are just automatically deemed 
better and more important and more valuable. Yeah, I'm so looking forward to a tag team match with him on one side and The Undertaker on the other. I think Undertaker, not to give away any spoilers, but I think Taker will win decisively in the tag match. I think uh, oh, we'll talk about it more when we get to the Extreme Rules. So make sure you hit the uh, the bell for your notifications here on Small Cow Moment so you're always aware when we put out new videos because they're coming thick and fast at the moment. Yep. And yeah, so it's just the idea of, yeah, just throw a little plug in there. Tony's not the only one who can like, fit a plug in very uh, seamlessly like that. Yeah, that's right. We can intersperse plugs too. Yes. So we move on now to the main event, which is WWF Championship match. Uh, Steve Austin versus Chris Jericho versus Chris Benoit. Uh, so the build is essentially, the build doesn't really seem to involve Benoit and Jericho pretty much at all. It's just basically built around the idea that Vincent Mann wants Stone Cold to do things on his own, and Stone Cold wants Vincent Mann to love him like the father that he never had, essentially, that, like you said earlier. And that's essentially the real storyline. Uh, so, matches. This is a pretty good triple threat. I wouldn't say it's like a masterful triple threat. It's definitely not in the same league as the like the WrestleMania 20 triple threat matches, the rest in WrestleMania 31 between Brian and Evolution and stuff along those sort of lines, but it's still a good match. I don't think Jericho had found himself yet. As weird as that is to say, he was in a weird transition period where I don't know if he had found his main event switch yet. Benoit was injured, but even he still had a little bit to go. I think the SmackDown 6 time period really helped him find his, you know, third gear, if you want to call it that. And Austin, he was a heel who the crowd didn't want to boo. He was outnumbered and ganged up on the whole time. So you had a weird vibe going into it. Yeah, I'm glad you picked up on that as well, because early on it's just like it's both Jericho and Benoit beating up Austin. And Austin's selling it well, but it's just a case of, okay, so these are just two baby faces beating up the heel. And then eventually the heel manages to get an advantage when it essentially breaks down into two singles matches, where it's first Austin against Jericho and then Austin against Benoit. And that's kind of part of the reason why it doesn't really flow for me as the triple threat match, because they're essentially just like, it's basically just two singles matches with Austin. And then eventually Austin gets taken out towards the end when Booker T interferes. Uh, so you have a few spots in the build-up towards that. So you have Benoit tries to use the title belt. He hits a stunner on Austin. Referees have been bumped over the place. They use steel chairs. They use title belts. They use uh, the five German suplexes in a row by Benoit. You have, you have uh, Austin gets trapped in both the crossface and the walls of Jericho at the same time. And he taps out, but the referee can't award the title to either of them because they both made him tap out. So the match has to continue. Do you think that's a stupid spot or not? I think that is a stupid spot because why wouldn't you just say, well, it's a one-on-one match now. You know? Yeah, I know. Well, it's just the idea they, they, they break from those rules every now and again because you remember like they had Undertaker and Kane both pin Austin one time to win yeah. the uh, WF Championship, so they vacate the title. Whereas in this instance, they just decided, okay, so the match is just continuing instead. They changed the rules on the fly, as WWE is prone to do. 
it's it's one of those why are you so focused on it? We're telling stories. Don't yeah, overthink exactly. it. Yeah. Uh, so Booker T jumps the barricade at one point, and the scissor kicks Austin before backdropping him through the Spanish announce table. Uh, that was obviously a really good introduction for Booker T. Just recently signed with the company. Crowd is pretty excited to see him. Pretty excited to see him take out Austin. Obviously, it's, this is the case of like a WCW champion taking out the WWF champion. They make it very clear that Booker T is the WCW champion at this point on commentary. Uh, and then it breaks down into Benoit and Jericho fighting to see who will be the one to take advantage of the fact that Austin's been taken out. Uh, but... Yeah, do you so, think, and we'll talk about this more next month, but do you think it was a mistake to not go with Booker and Steve, whereas they go with Rock and Booker, because Rock ends up being the babyface? I think if they had not had what happened with the um, the Tacoma Dome incident, as we'll probably refer to it, uh, that I would assume that the main event of Invasion would have been Austin versus Booker T, and Booker would have beaten him. That's that would have been better. Yeah, I think that would have been the better way of doing it. Like that would be the way. Oh, we win WCW for Monday Night Raw because our champion beat your champion, and the, with the fact that Austin was a heel at that point in time, I think would have worked. Obviously, you would have had people that were in pro WWF, and so would have backed Austin instead. But you know, it could have been an interesting way of doing it. Especially given that Booker T was given a pretty good introduction both here and also taking out Vince Man on an episode of uh, Raw as well. So, but then I think also what hurt this match is when it did get down to Jericho against Benoit, I don't think anyone really believed that either of these guys was going to win the match. Yeah, or at the very least, they weren't going to beat each other for it. Yeah. So they had Austin got back in the ring, Jericho hit. I rarely ever saw Jericho do an actual moonsault. He obviously does lion soul in practically every match, but he actually did an actual moonsault on this one. And then Benoit yeah. breaks up. Yeah, Benoit breaks up that pin. Benoit then hits a headbutt, and Jericho breaks up that pin. And then they do like this finish. The finish is really weird. So Benoit suplexes Chris Jericho off the top right with a back suplex. And previously on the match, Austin for some reason hit two superplexes in a row on Benoit during this match, which I've, I forgot to mention, but that's, like, odd. You never really see back-to-back superplexes. Yeah, because the way that they have to set it up, it doesn't seem practical to, okay, drop this guy from that height, don't pin him, pick him up and try to do it again and hope he doesn't block you. Yeah, and these are two guys, one with like a previously broken neck, and the other guy with a broken neck. Yeah. I remember uh, the match ending when I was a child really messed with me. Like, I didn't understand. One, why it just ended on a back suplex. Two, why Austin didn't, like, pick somebody up and hit his finisher. You know, like, those questions really lingered. But now that I know that he was just way too hurt. Yeah, it was just like a really underwhelming way to end it. I mean, I don't know. I know he probably was hurt by the end of it, so it probably curtailed the ending. But it just made it made Benoit look bad. It made the finish lose a little bit of um, emphasis behind it. It also made Booker T's impact underwhelming as well, because he only attacked Austin, and Austin was the one who won the match. And still, 
this is a theme with Austin as a heel. It just didn't just didn't work. Like the finish didn't work. No. It's hard to have like him as the top heel, but also kind of still portraying him as the top babyface as well. It just was a really bad mismatch of things. And that wouldn't get any easier throughout the year. No. Um we will definitely be moving on to that past one, but that was King of the Ring 2001. I'd say overall a poor pay-per-view. Very With... poor pay-per-view, but one that will never be forgotten because... No, one Shame huge saving grace. Yeah, one huge yeah. saving grace with uh, Shane Man versus Kurt Angle. And the main event wasn't bad either, but other than that, it's just a really forgettable show. I, uh, I agree. It was, a, it was the beginning of that transition into what is now known as the biggest disappointment angle in wrestling. Mm. And Shane McMahon saved this show, but ultimately this is the penultimate King of the Ring. Yeah, so so that the tournament obviously won't end at that point in time, but the actual pay-per-view itself is on its last legs. And it's also the last legs of what we'll basically have come to at the moment of thinking of WCW becoming its own entity because we now move on to in July talking about all the news that happens at that point in time, but also Invasion, where the battle lines are finally drawn between WWF on one side and ECW and WCW on the other. So that's plenty to look forward to. That's going to carry us pretty much till the end of the year. So better buckle up and enjoy it, guys. Uh, that's a strong statement, because we're going to be buckled up and we're going to be here, but I don't know if we'll enjoy it. No, but it'll be interesting to look back and just look at it with... 2019 eyes. Yeah. Was it was it as bad as we really gave it credit for? And uh, actually, I'm hoping that I don't know whether it'll be just as bad, better, or even worse. <laughs> it may very well be even worse. Yeah, we'll just have to wait and see. So hopefully, you'll join us on that journey towards the the back end of 2001. We've covered the entire first half of 2001 now, and obviously, you can check out all the other videos we've done if you haven't seen them before from covering all the way from January, February, March, April, May, now June, and especially on WrestleMania X7 as well. Uh, that's just the tip of the iceberg into the video content we've got on SmartCat Moments, so hit the bell for notifications, subscribe to the YouTube channel. We've got this, we have hot tags every week, we've got other, currently doing the Sexy Superstar Tournament, which we do videos for, and you can also vote if you haven't already in the tournament on SmartCatMoment.com where you can also read all the weekly articles we put out there and any other pieces of content we put on there. It's a great place to keep up with a lot of great writers and a lot of great talkers on the landscape now and in the past as well. Uh, if you want to support us monetarily, then you can obviously hit up the Patreon. Uh, any spare change you can spare is greatly appreciated. It could just be a dollar a month. That would just go a long way to keeping the lights on here and supporting all this this huge amount of content that we're producing right now. Uh, next time you hear us, we'll be on the uh, Fighter Fest review, unless this goes out after Fighter Fest, in which case which, you already heard that. <laughs> so, and in which case, you'll probably hear us next on either the Hot Tags or the, or the mailbag preview or the Mailbag. Yeah. We have a lot of content coming your way. We're so grateful to those of you that are, you know, Devoted fans, like, we know we can count on people like Guest 5 and Peter, but if you're new to Smart Out Moment, check out 
everything we have. Check out the Facebook, the Twitter. Those are all at SmartOutMoment. And check out the Redbubble and Public because those are great ways to support us monetarily. And outside of that, Callum, if you've gotten all your plugs out of the way, you can check me out on Twitter and Instagram at DudeFelice. You can check out um, TimeKillerApparel.com. Check out WrestleZone.com, eWrestling News, because I am covering wrestling all my life, all day long. So that's it for us. Callum, do you have any other plugs to throw out there? Uh, well, just if you're ever so inclined, you can follow me at Weekmeister14. And yeah, that's just about it. So thank you very much again for joining us on this trip back in time. We'll be back with another edition of 2001 Wrestling Odyssey next month. And thanks again. This has been another small count moment, and we are being counted out. Oh!